When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. The period piece Summer in February stars Dan Stevens and Dominic Cooper as rivals and friends caught in a love triangle. The Act of Killing is a documentary from director Joshua Oppenheimer that challenges former Indonesian leaders to reenact their real-life mass killings through cinema. Both titles are available on demand starting January 1st. The latest independent films are ready when you are with Movies on Demand on cable. The Art House is now in your house. From New York City, this is Film Spotting, streaming video units. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. Up on this week's show, we'll be cruising the neighborhood in our creepy SVURV as we discuss the kidnapping drama Prisoners. And since we're recording this in the last days of 2013, it's also time for our Svoovie Awards, which we can now comfortably refer to as annual since we'll have done them twice. Like before, these will come in some non-standard categories, some of which were suggested by SVU listeners. Um, Matt, we sadly ended up having to ditch your suggested category of best Paul Dano performance as a guy getting beaten up because we realized that Paul Dano was actually only in two movies this year, which didn't seem a wide enough selection. Though, to be fair, he did get beat up in both of them. (laughs) But first up is Opening Break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies on Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight a few notable films new on demand on cable. Matt, what are our picks this time? Our first pick is the new film from Pedro Almodovar. It's called I'm So Excited, and I am excited to watch it. It will be available on VOD starting on January 7th. The official plot synopsis I have here says, When it appears the end is in sight, the flight crew and passengers of a plane look to forget the moment and face the danger which we carry within ourselves. And I think the idea is it is set on an airplane, a, f- a plane that is flying somewhere. There's some sort of mechanical problem, and the plane is circling over somewhere and waiting to attempt to land. Uh, but uh, apparently the situation does not look good, and it's about the crew and the passengers dealing with that fact. Buenas tardes, señoras y señores pasajeros. Les habla José Ravera Sateri, sobrecargo del vuelo 2549 de la compañía Península con destino a México DF. Por favor, presten atención. Alison, did you catch this movie? I did not. Yeah, I didn't either. It, it definitely didn't get, uh, you know, as great reviews as some of Pedro Almodóvar's recent films. I think probably it's safe to say that this might be category, categorized as minor Pedro uh, Almodovar, but you know what? Minor uh, Pedro movie is still a major movie to see in my book, so I'm I'm looking forward to catching up with it, definitely. So that's I'm So Excited, and it will be available on VOD starting on January 7th. We've got two more picks for you, both also becoming available on January 7th. 
I'm looking forward to catching up with both of these. First is a documentary called Birth of the Living Dead, directed by Rob Coons. This is a documentary about the origins and the making of George Romero's Night of the Living Dead. It's just what it sounds like, Birth of the Living Dead. It's the the birth of the film, how George Romero came in the late 1960s to create this film and really this entire genre that has become such a huge part of American pop culture, not just in films, but in television and literature and everything. So uh, really looking forward to to checking that out. I've interviewed George Romero on several occasions, and he's he's a delightful man to interview. He's not at all terrifying. He's quite charming and gregarious. So I imagine if he's in this film at all, it's going to be uh, quite entertaining to watch. So that's Birth of the Living Dead, and again, that is going to be available on January 7th. And finally, a film that's gone under my radar, but uh, as soon as I saw this pop up on the list, I'm very curious to check it out. It's called A Fantastic Fear of Everything. It's directed by Crispian Mills. And here's the plot synopsis of this one. Jack is a children's author termed crime novelist whose research into serial killers has turned him into a wreck with an irrational fear of being murdered. I'm not sure how irrational the fear of being murdered is. That seems like a very rational fear to me, but uh, maybe I'm just a neurotic person. What really caught my eye here is that Jack, the author, the main character, is played by Simon Pegg, who, uh, of course, we love from so many movies with Edgar Wright, uh, with from the Star Trek movies. He's, you know, he's in a lot of stuff. He's, he's a great actor. Uh, I know we're both big fans of his. I, I don't think I've ever even heard of this movie. I think it's British and uh, had a small release there in England. I'm not sure if it ever got any kind of a release in America. I certainly hadn't heard about it, but I'm, I'm, I like the premise. The premise sounds intriguing, and certainly Simon Pegg as the uh, star also intriguing as well. So I'm really looking forward to checking that one out as well. So that's A Fantastic Fear of Everything, and that is also going to be available for renting on VOD, on January 2nd Annual Sfuvi Awards. Scheduled to appear on this year's Sfuvi Awards is no one. And now your hosts, Matt Singer and Allison Wilmore. I'll add some Woo. Yeah, I'll add some music in there, maybe some applause. It'll sound very professional. It'll sound good. Yeah, yeah. So this is the 2nd Annual Sfuvi Awards. This is where we give out uh, some awards for the year in film, and we try to uh, to focus where we can on stuff that is streaming. After all, this is the Streaming Video Unit podcast. Uh, we started last year on this show with a, a, a long conversation about the year in film, and I don't think we have quite as much to say, in part because uh, Allison is now you know, the TV editor at IndieWire. She's focusing a little more on TV, a little less on film. Um, but we did also go through our top ten lists uh, on this show 
last year. So, Allison, you have a top 10 TV – is it TV shows or TV episodes? I have TV shows. I also made a top 15 TV episodes list, but let's save that for another time. Okay. People can find that on IndieWire? Yes, they okay. can. So if, you're pe- if people want to check out that individual episodes list, they can find that at IndieWire. But you're going to run down your best TV – this is TV series or TV seasons? Yes. Kind of – TV doesn't fit very easily into any particular – you know, you can go by start of the year and end of the year, or some people do the September to May run. Either right. way, you're going to kind of cut off some seasons. It's just what happens. But uh, I did the full year this year and kind of rate, based my ratings on, on what how the shows did in that year. Um, so this is my top 10, starting at number 10, which would be The Returned, which is this great supernatural French drama that's just wrapped up on Sundance Channel and is about the dead coming back to life in this small town in uh, in the mountains in France. And it's uh, it's very unusual, and it's one I liked a lot. Number nine is Bob's Burgers, the Fox animated comedy. Number eight is Hannibal, the uh, NBC prequel of sorts to Silence of the Lambs. Uh, number seven is The Americans, the FX is period spy drama. Uh, number six, Game of Thrones, HBO. Number five is Scandal on ABC, which has been having just a great recent season and is just crazy and at the same time very smart. Number four, Enlightened, the Mike, the Mike White drama, that uh, drama comedy that unfortunately ended this year. Number three, Top of the Lake, which we talked about on this very podcast. Number two, Orange is the New Black, which we also talked about on this podcast. And number one, Breaking Bad, which I thought just had an amazing final run. And uh, not every not every show, even great ones, end well. But I, I thought Breaking Bad managed to end really well. Okay. Well, here is my top ten films list of the year. Uh, starting from number ten, I have The Bling Ring. Number nine, I have 12 Years a Slave. Number eight, Francis Ha, which we discussed on the show. Number seven, Stories We Tell. Number six, The World's End. Number five, Captain Phillips. Number four, the new Coen Brothers movie, Inside Lewin Davis. Number three, The Wind Rises, the new uh, Miyazaki movie. Number two, Her, from Spike Jones, And number one, Short Term 12, a film I'm sure I've definitely mentioned on the podcast. I don't think we ever reviewed it on the sh- on the show. No, we didn't. I've definitely recommended it uh, several times for sure. I don't think it's available for streaming or rental yet. I think actually this month, later this month, sometime in January, it will be available for rental downloads on Amazon, on demand, all that sort of thing. And when that happens, I definitely recommend people check it out. That was Really fabulous film. I've seen it several times now, and it was very close between that and her for my favorite of the year. They're sort of one and one A, but Short Term Twelve had the advantage of sticking with me longer. A lot, you know. Normally, people always say the movies that come out at the end of the year have the advantage because they're fresh in our minds. We've just seen them, and so we we tend to weigh them more heavily than the the movies that we saw earlier in the year. And in this case, it was the opposite. The movie. I saw it way back in March, and it just hasn't hasn't left me. I've been thinking about it all this time. So that, to me, was the the slight edge that made me give it my number one spot. Do you have anything else uh, in a general sense to say, Allison, before we get to the spoovies, the actual awards? 
No, I, I, I will say that I've only been slowly catching up with some of the kind of year-end movies just because I've been stuck at home nursing an injury, so I haven't been able to go see a lot of things. Right. I did finally get to see Inside Lewin Davis, which I loved. Mm-hmm. I thought was just fantastic, yeah. and I was really happy to get to see that. So uh, I'm a big fan of that one. It may be in my kind of slightly more, in my certainly more limited year of movies it's probably at the top of my list at the moment higher than uh, 12 years a slave i know you yeah, were very high on that so. one too i did i really like 12 years a slave but i, I think inside Lewin davis uh may have edged it out slight edge well yeah i was definitely uh, i that was ranked higher on my list too so i would certainly agree with you uh, yes, you mentioned, uh, you know, we've, we're, once again, we're, we had promised, I think, last episode that that would be our last episode that we would be doing over Skype. Uh, but then we forgot one crucial fact, which was that uh, it is the holidays. Allison is not actually in Brooklyn, contrary to all of our introductions. <laughs> She's visiting her family out west, so we are separated. But we didn't want to wait until she was back, so we are recording this 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 one over over skype as well but hopefully for real now this is the real last uh, episode that we'll be recording this way hopefully in two weeks we'll be back to our normal routine you think yeah, so, so thank Al- you you think, I, so, I think so yeah thank you for your patience everyone yeah you're not rabid anymore people have been curious how your rabies has been you've been dealing with your yeah rabies. you know it's uh i've been taking some vitamins right it's been slowly slowly fading yeah rabies. you don't sound quite as uh, mouth foamy as you were on previous episodes no and i almost never bite people anymore when they yeah. come to see me so yeah the, maybe like every fourth person now which yeah, the, is way better than it was a week ago yeah the growling i would say you're probably still doing that a little too much especially well, when yeah. we, we mention people, movies you don't like but other than people that people have no idea of the amount of editing work that goes into this podcast there's a lot yeah they don't realize there's a lot of of growling editing i have to do anytime yeah, i mention carl urban you just start howling it's weird <laughs> Very strange. All right. Well, let's move on to the Svuvi Awards because we've also got to get to our review of Prisoners a little bit later. So we do have a few less awards this year. We, we, we cut back just a tiny bit because we've got our Listener's Choice Review to get to. And Allison is, you know, is uh, splitting her time between film and TV. So we wanted to make sure we got some, some good stuff in here, but we didn't go overboard. So we're going to start with uh, some favorites that we do every year on the Svuvis. Every year, meaning this year and last year, and that is the the we didn't get it award and the they didn't get it award. These are the awards for films that either our colleagues loved and we didn't. That would be the we didn't get it award, and the they didn't get it award, which is where our colleagues didn't like a movie that we particularly loved. So let's start with the we didn't get it award, the film that our colleagues loved that we were left out in the cold about we just didn't get it we didn't like it we didn't love it we don't understand the reaction for it allison who are you giving your sfuvi in the category of the we didn't get it award to okay i will give my we didn't get it award to upstream color Mm. yes the second film from shane carruth of primer a film that we talked about on this podcast and which i i really like it's upstream color is currently available to stream on netflix as well as to rent via most of the usual suspects uh this is a film that a lot of people latched onto when it premiered at sundance and when it came out in theater shortly afterwards it's one that just leaves me in that uncomfortable state between 
feeling like it has this very powerful and beautiful metaphor and then feeling like I'm looking for meaning in meaningless symbols and uh, you know in that way that just makes you feel kind of silly or like you're just indulging someone's too serious experiment uh, especially since I, I don't know that the the main storyline if you want to call it that in upstream color can be parsed it's about a, a woman who is <laughs> given a worm by an identity thief and this worm seems to allow him power over her will and he stays with her and takes all of these things from her and she afterwards is kind of her life is destroyed she has no idea what happened to her she's kind of in trauma and she meets a man played by Shane Carruth the director who seems to have had the same thing happen to him and they start a relationship and I feel that if this isn't a metaphor for something and I think you can maybe make an argument for it being a metaphor for trauma or for romantic love or for a few different things, but I don't think any of them necessarily come through clearer than any other. Uh, if it's not a metaphor, then I think it's a pretty goofy movie. It's <laughs> just, it has like a very serious treatment of this, this process that I found kind of hilarious. So I, I think that Shane Carruth is a talented filmmaker in terms of imagery. This There's a lot of very striking imagery in this film, but it left me feeling kind of embarrassed for myself in, in going with it for as long as I did. It left me feeling a little cheated. So uh, that that gets the We Didn't Get It award from me. And if someone has a, has a read on Upstream Color that they feel very strongly about, I would love to hear it please send it to us at svu at filmsmilingsvu.com. Yeah, that's a, that's a strong pick. That's the I guess that's the uh, we both didn't get an award for me. It's not my pick, but it could have been. Uh, I'm not as big a fan of Primer as you are, and I wasn't a huge fan of Upstream Color. It's funny. It was, you know, on uh, the, the website that I work for, the Dissolve, that we do a, you know, like a, a collective uh, balloting, you know, top, 15 or 20 list and that wound up as the number five movie on the site based on all the different votes but it wasn't even wasn't anywhere near my list so i guess i you know they all got it and i didn't i i definitely felt uh left on the outside with you uh in that case the one thing i would add that you didn't mention is i feel like again i agree with you there's a lot of fascinating stuff going on these weird ideas it's such an interesting unusual world and uh it's all photographed so beautifully but uh i just didn't think that shane carruth for all his interesting writing and direction i'm just not sure he's that great of an actor and and he you know he cast himself as the male lead he's opposite uh amy simitz and i think she's a fabulous actress i think she does a nice job in the film but I don't know. I, I mean, he's a good-looking guy, and he, you know, he kind of is a—he's a striking figure on screen. But I guess his aloofness to me doesn't really help when the, the story is so enigmatic and the themes are so enigmatic. I don't know. I guess I've, I felt like I needed someone who would draw me in a little bit more instead of keeping me at arm's length. Yeah, uh, it, that was I mean, a big problem for me. It is in part a romance between two people who are drawn together for reasons they can't explain. Mm. And I feel like you only 
that only comes through because it's the only explanation for why they get together, not because it's there on screen and any noticeable pull between the two actors, you know, there's no, that whole aspect of the film is definitely very pallid. Yeah. It, It feels underdeveloped. Yeah. All right. Well, my We Didn't Get It Award goes to uh, a film I was really looking forward to. And maybe that was part of the problem was maybe my my expectations were a little bit too high. But I was sorely disappointed when I finally got around to watching Leviathan, which is directed by Lucian Casting Taylor and Verena uh, Paravel. And uh, the film, if you'd like to see it, is available for rental on Amazon, iTunes, and Vudu. It's a impressionistic film about life on a fishing boat. Um, they, the directors really just kind of set cameras up everywhere all over the boat and just let kind of life play out on these very long takes. Some of these shots um, are very unique because they're shot underwater or hanging from things or off the edge of the boat. They use these um, GoPro cameras, which are these really rugged cameras that can kind of go anywhere, and they're very durable to get some very you know unusual angles that you wouldn't normally be able to get with a regular film. And I was a really big fan of Sweetgrass, which was the last film from one of the two co-directors here, uh, Lucian Casting-Taylor. I loved that movie. I think it was on my top ten list that year. Um, but this one really left me surprisingly cold and admittedly it didn't help i watched this movie at home on blu-ray instead of in a movie theater and i'm sure the movie does play better in a theater because it's very dreamlike there's no narrative and i'm sure in a theater with the lights off where you're you know totally focused on the screen the dreamlike quality of it probably envelops you a little more uh, than it did me at home but to me part of the appeal of sweetgrass was, you know, like the magnificence of the imagery. It was just a fun movie to look at. It was an enjoyable experience to look at. And Leviathan, in contrast, to me, like to look at it, it wasn't that appealing. It was a little repetitive, ugly. You know, the GoPro cameras, they can shoot anywhere. They can go anywhere. They can get these really unique angles, but they're not exactly like the most clear angles. So you're getting a lot of like grainy, muddy not particularly stimulating imagery, and you're looking at it for like five or ten minutes at a time without a cut. So it just – I don't know. I felt like I got the movie after 20, 30 minutes, and then there was another hour, and it just – I don't know. It didn't add up to a lot for me, and I kept waiting for like you know some sort of grand insight that it, it, it just never came. You know, I, I would definitely be willing to look at the movie again in a theater – to see it that way, as I'm sure it was meant to be seen. But, uh, you know, I, as a home viewing experience, which is how I imagine a lot of people are going to be watching it as it appears on other people's top 10 lists and stuff, I, I, I just can't recommend it. So for me, that was the, the We Didn't Get It Award for 2013, Leviathan. Yeah, that's a movie that I missed the chance to see it in a theater, and then it just didn't seem worth it to seek it out otherwise. I didn't feel like I could get the kind of immersive experience it seemed to demand. Yeah. Man, yeah. Maybe, maybe not. But then again, I saw Sweetgrass at home on my, you know, yeah, I think I probably watched true. that on, on Netflix, you know, streaming on Netflix or maybe on a screener copy. And I loved it. So I don't know. Maybe again, I had very high expectations for the movie just because I really did love Sweetgrass so much. And maybe that was just it. Maybe I was just too focused on, you know, the what I expected it to be or what I wanted it to be. 
And so I was I was disappointed. All right, let's get to the They Didn't Get It Award. Again, this is the spoofy for the film that we loved more than our colleagues. Allison, what are you giving your They Didn't Get It Award to? So for my They Didn't Get It Award pick, I went with a film that I know has had, it's got a few supporters, but I really was surprised by how much I liked it. And I, I thought it deserved a little more attention than that. It is Pain and Gain, available for rent on iTunes, Google Play, YouTube, Sony, Hipless, and Redbox. It's kind of Michael Bay's idiot Goodfellas. It's based on a true story of a group of bodybuilders who uh, kidnapped and extorted money from various victims in the Miami area. And they are played by Mark Wahlberg, Dwayne Johnson, and Anthony Mackie as a group of guys who uh, have more impressive pectoral muscles than they do street smarts or any kind of criminal ability. And yet they get surprisingly far. And I think what makes this movie work so well is that Michael Bay affords it the same level of slickness, at least in terms of style, as any of his other mainstream blockbusters. Uh, these are, except these are characters who think of themselves as guys in movies and aren't. And I think that uh, particularly in the voiceovers, these extremely earnest, vapid voiceovers about the American dream and potential and maximizing, you know, your strengths. And then like the realities of what their lives are like, particularly the main character who's played by Mark Wahlberg, who lives in a crummy apartment and is a personal trainer, you know, who's largely ignored by a lot of his clientele. Uh, There's something that's, very weirdly profound about that uh, and they're very funny too uh, there's a great scene in which they try and get rid of the a victim that they've kidnapped and it goes wrong multiple times and every time they try and walk away from it in this movie star way it, it just and then it doesn't work out there's actually a walking away from an explosion scene that has a great moment of physical comedy in it that's amazing eagle is on the move it's coming to us Pay to neutralize the target Go, 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 get him, get him, get him! What the hell? Did you get him? Frick. Where is he? Maniac. He was right here. Where'd he go? You see him? Where the hell is he? There he is! You got the wrong BMW? Two exact BMWs. I told you to check the license plate. It was an honest mistake. So we thought it was the same car. It looked exactly the same. And I, I think that in some ways, this movie exists on the same plane as Spring Breakers, except I like it a little more because it's more dedicated to this deep, deep sincerity and kind of vacancy at the same time. And it's got a, a really impressive... A group of performances from particularly from Dwayne Johnson, Dwayne the Rock Johnson, as the you know, the kind of sweetest and most easily manipulated of the three and largest of the three guys. But it is a uh, it's it's a movie I, I thought was underappreciated. Pain and gain. Well, in this case, this is not one we agree on. I guess <laughs> I didn't get it either, Allison. This was one I was. Not a huge fan of, and I was I was looking forward to it as we will. I'm we're gonna we'll we'll get to this a little later, but this was a movie that I was looking forward to seeing this year. Uh, I don't know. It just seemed to me a little, you know, like a lot of Michael Bay's movies, just 
unfocused, a big ramshackle mess. I just felt like it needed a little more precision, you know, like it just was a, a big, you know, flashy, you know, it was like a, a, a it was like he, he had a paintball gun and on, you know, set to automatic fire and he was just just blasting everything inside. It needed a little bit more pointed accuracy of, uh, of its targets, I felt. Uh, yeah, see, I kind of liked that it didn't it didn't cut very hard at its main characters. It didn't need to. And also, I feel like it would have been a very it's already not a movie that would claim subtlety as one of its strengths. But I right. feel like if it if it targeted its main characters at all and they're such easy targets, I, I don't think I would have liked it very much. I think it would have seemed like a very obvious satire, but it doesn't target them. It offers them the same kind of protagonist treatment as a lot of other characters in a lot of other Michael Bay films. They're just, they just happen to be, you know, kind of losers basically uh, who, who, who haven't their main characters in their own minds mostly. And I thought there was something really uh, pointed about that. All right. Well, we'll have to, uh, we'll have to agree to disagree on that one for my, they didn't get it award. Uh, I just looked it up. Pain and Gain had a 50% on Rotten Tomatoes, so split right down the middle. Uh, My pick had a 60% on Rotten Tomatoes, so it did a little bit better with critics, but still uh, not not all that great. And this was another one that I think could have and was in a lot of circles roped in with Pain and Gain, with Spring Breakers, with The Great Gatsby, with The Wolf of Wall Street. There was a lot of movies with these themes this year about – you know, robbery, capitalism, crime. The American dream. Yes, the American dream gone uh, dark and seedy and gross and uh, capitalism run amok and all those sorts of things. Uh, so this movie was another one of those those movies and perhaps I guess maybe ultimately there was just so many of those movies that, you know, some of them were going to fall by the wayside. But I thought this was maybe the most interesting or one of the most interesting movies about that uh, that topic because it was a little bit different. And that, that movie was The Bling Ring, directed by Sofia Coppola, w- available on Amazon, iTunes, Vudu, and YouTube for rental. And Allison, I'm not a huge Sofia Coppola fan. Uh, I, you know, it's not like I, I, I'm automatically in the bag for anything she does. Uh, it might be the opposite. I'm not, not a big fan, but I actually thought this was one of her better movies. And I found the the treatment of these characters really interesting. And in particular, what I liked about it and what I didn't see talked about a lot from a lot of people who just dismissed it as, well, the characters are so superficial and the movie is very superficial as a result. And so it's a very glossy treatment uh, that doesn't really probe deeply into the into the psyches of the characters, et cetera, et cetera. I think, first of all, you know, when you're dealing with characters who aren't uh, del- delving into their own psyches and aren't, uh, you know, thinking that deeply about what they're doing, uh, I, I, I don't think you should ask, you know, I think it's unfair to ask the movie to do the same. But I think even more than that, what I found so interesting about the movie was even more than you know, robbery or celebrity or any of these things, you know, conspicuous consumption. Uh, The thing that I found so interesting about The Bling Ring was the way that it used all of those other themes to kind of speak to a larger idea about 
like exhibitionism, the core exhibitionism of all American culture now, where it's not enough to you know have something, but you've got to flaunt it as well, right? And and so much of the movie is about not just the these uh, young teenagers who are breaking into celebrities' houses and robbing them, but the celebrities themselves. I mean, the reason they're able to you know break into these people's houses because their every move is being documented on these websites where you know it says oh Paris Hilton is opening a club in Las Vegas this weekend so we can go go break into her house because we know she won't be home or you know Orlando Bloom is shooting a movie in New Zealand so we can break into his house and meanwhile for the thieves it's like it's it's nothing is complete until they've you know uploaded their uh, exploits onto Facebook and taking pictures wherever they are at a club or whatever and put that on social media. Um, and then, you know, the the key scene to me in the movie is this fabulous robbery of, I think it's Audrina uh, Pat, uh, Partridge's, Patridge's, whatever her name is, from the hills, her house. And it's all done in one single long take where uh, the camera is set way back in the Hollywood Hills and you're just looking at this beautiful jewel box of a house that's sitting in the hills and in one unbroken take we watch uh from a distance as they kind of the 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 bling ring these these thieves go from room to room ransacking the whole place and we can see the whole thing uh, from outside from a distance because even though uh audrina is out she's left the windows open the shades all open and all of her lights on so that everyone around around her all of her neighbors can watch can look can see what's going on in her house you know so uh, it's all about you know this this obsession with oversharing with exhibitionism and that was the thing that i found particularly interesting about The Bling Ring among all of these other movies on a a similar subject this year. Okay, so we are going to make vision boards about people who are demonstrating good character, like Angelina Jolie. So, what qualities do you guys admire about Angelina Jolie? Her husband. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Okay. Anything else? Her hot bod. Okay. Okay. Well, the hot bod is not a characteristic, but okay. How long do we have to do this for? Well, we're going to do it until we finish, and then we're going to move on to the fluorescence work. So I hope people, you know, if you, you know, you saw the kind of mixed reviews and you decided to take a pass on it, I hope you'll go and check it out. I think it's a much better movie than uh, people gave it credit for. I saw it several times. I liked it more the second time I saw it. So that's The Bling Ring, and it's available for rental on Amazon, iTunes, Vudu, and YouTube. All right. Well, let's move on to a category that was suggested by one of our followers on Twitter, Skipacabra. Yep. Uh, yep. And it is Best End of the World Movie. And this was a year for for destroying the world. We had a lot of them. Uh, yep. Some I'll throw out there. I'm assuming – I have a guess for what your pick is, Matt – but uh, I'm guessing it's probably not World War Z. No, although I liked or... World War Z. Yeah, did you? Yeah, I World, did War not like World War Z. No, World yeah, War Z wasn't no. bad. I mean, given I was bothered by the fact that that everywhere Brad Pitt went, things then fell apart. Yes, it was like Brad Brad Pitt was the, the reason that oh, the world ended. Yes, if only is... they just destroyed him. That's a <laughs> it's a totally fair observation. It's something that isn't really spoken about in the movie. But you're right. Everywhere he goes, everything seems to be going okay until he shows up, and then 
then immediately disaster <laughs> tends to befall everything. But I mean, I, I didn't think World War Z was a great movie, but I thought for a summer kind of, uh, you know, chase uh, zombies uh, kind of a thing, it wasn't totally unsatisfying. I'd give it a marginal thumbs up. I mm-hmm. thought, and I thought actually the the reshot stuff because they famously threw away the last act of the movie and completely rewrote and reshot the ending. I thought the the ending actually worked pretty well, um, and I thought it was a nice change of pace from those scenes where everything is fine. Brad Pitt shows up, everything goes crazy, and then he has to <laughs> run away and be the only one who escapes with his life. I actually yeah. thought the ending was the was really effective, and also the the scene right before that on the airplane I thought was another yes. really good set piece. So, I mean, yeah. look, for a, for a blockbuster movie, I thought it could have been a lot worse. But no, that's not my pick, certainly. Yes, not. fair enough. Yeah. Uh, and there are a few others we can mention after this. Uh, I, go, I went ahead and, for my pick, went with one that there are two movies that are basically tied for me okay. for this category. So I went with one of them that I thought you might not pick, Matt, Okay. Uh, which is one that we've mentioned, we've talked about a little bit before on this podcast. This is The End, mm-hmm. which is available for rent on Amazon, iTunes, Google Play, Voodoo, YouTube, Sony, Hitlist, and Redbox. And what I liked about this one, and what also gave it a slight edge for me over the other uh, movie that I uh, that I had in the running was that I thought this was a slightly better end of the world movie in that it had all kinds of semi-biblical destruction going on, but also kind of hilarious destruction. Uh, I, I liked that for no particular reason, the demons have enormous genitals. I like that uh, there's a kind of weird broishness to the end of the world uh, that fits in with the whole universe in which the movie takes place. And and I thought that, uh, you know, as much as it is mainly a movie about friendship uh, and about this friendship, these two guys who have drifted apart, Seth Rogen and uh, Jay Baruchel, it, it blended in a lot of the cliches of apocalypse really well, uh, including uh, what happens when the survivors turn against each other. At the very end, uh, there's a great cameo appearance that I thought was hilarious. Um, and, and I just, I really like the way that the two storylines, the male friendship and the apocalypse in rapture and everything else came together. Uh, it just thought very cleverly. It was in, in terms of, the movie's coming from this general group of, of producers and actors. And, and just in terms of a summer movie, it was a real pleasant surprise for me. I enjoyed it ext- like very much. So that would be my pick for best end of the world movie of the year. Matt, uh, what's your pick? Uh, I'm assuming that the movie you kept alluding to uh, repeatedly was The World's End. Yes. Yes. So that is my pick, <laughs> The World's End, directed by Edgar Wright, available on iTunes, Google Play, Vudu, and YouTube. And yeah, it's not quite as much, despite the title, it's not quite as much a like a biblical, apocalyptic, end-of-the-world type movie, but uh, it's a really, really satisfying science fiction film. And actually, without spoiling too much, it does get to a place where it does get pretty apocalyptic. And I think... Thematically, it's really talking about all the same things uh, that an apocalypse movie, uh, you know, wants to address. And I thought the way that the movie uses the end of the world, quote unquote, as a almost more of a metaphor than a, than a literal thing, was pretty interesting. And it's about the, these uh, these old friends who many years ago went on this epic pub crawl that they didn't accomplish. It was it's you know twelve pints in in a night, and they didn't get to the end. And they never finished it. And, you know, all these years later, the main guy, Gary King, 
played by Simon Pegg, you know, decides he's going to finish what he started. Uh, he's never sort of moved on from that night. He's, you know, he's a basically this loser uh, who has never grown up and obsessed with that night and now decides to go back to his hometown, reunite with his friends who he hasn't seen in years, and finally uh, accomplish this uh, this epic pub crawl. Have you got any plans for dinner at all? Tonight, we will be partaking of a liquid repast as we wend our way up the Golden Mile, commencing with an inaugural tankard in the first post, then onto the old familiar, the famous cock, the cross hands, the good companions, the trusty servant, the two-headed dog, the mermaid, the beehive, the king's head, and the hole in the wall for a measure of the same, all before the last bittersweet pint in that most fateful terminus, the world's end. Leave a light on, good lady, for though we may return with a twinkle in our eyes, we will in truth be blind. Drunk. And the way that it equates, you know, kind of getting old, mortality with the end of the world was something that I found very interesting, along with the way that Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg and everybody involved here, really, they don't make anything very simple. You know, it's not as simple as saving the world from the apocalypse or the apocalypse occurring. It's not as simple as this Scary King character learning his lesson and becoming a better person or not learning his lesson and remaining the same way. You know, there's this sense by the end of the movie that, like, the world can end and continue at the same time and that people can maybe learn some lessons but keep making the same mistakes over and over. And I thought all of that uh, was really great. I thought the ending of this movie, which was very unusual, atypical, and not easy to summarize or put into a box of here's what it means. Uh, it was a movie you could discuss for – it was an ending you could discuss for a long time. I thought it was really fantastic. And at a time when so many movies, uh, including World War Z to some extent, but really just about everything else that came out this summer were these exercises in nostalgia, in these movies and concepts that – uh, you know, I, really, our generation is to blame for bringing about the end of the movie world, perhaps, Allison, that all the things we love to see as <laughs> kids keep being trotted out over and over again in a way that's maybe not healthy, even though we enjoy it to some extent. And I felt like The World's End really, in a certain extent, was about that. It is about wallowing in nostalgia and how that can be destructive and how ultimately maybe we need to destroy those things that we love, destroy our childhood uh, even if we do really cherish those memories in order to move forward, you know, kill the past so that we can live in the present. And I, I, I really appreciated that about The World's End. So that's going to be my pick for the best end of the world movie, The World's End, available on iTunes, Google Play, Vudu, YouTube, all the usual suspects. And again, that was a category suggested from Twitter. That was from user at Skepacabra. So thank you to everyone who submitted categories. We've got one more fan submitted category we're going to do here before we wrap things up and that's best scene in a bad movie and that was from twitter user at josh rosenfield allison what is your spoofy winner for the best scene in a bad movie <laughs> all right my pick is actually an hbo original movie called phil specter you can find it streaming on HBO Go if you have that. Written and directed by David Mamet and sort of based on the Phil Spector trial in a way that's actually very uncomfortable. It declares itself a work of fiction in the beginning, but it is about a famous music producer named Phil Spector who, you know, may or may not, he's on trial for murder and it, the lawyer is, you know, based on his real lawyer. And so uh, it makes fiction out of something 
out of a trial that's, you know, already happened and he was convicted. Uh, so the fact that it kind of says, well, maybe he was convicted for something just because he was a weirdo, which is essentially the main drama of the story. Right. Uh, it's something that kind of, it's a little repugnant given the circumstances, but anyway, Helen Mirren plays the defense attorney, Linda Kenny Bodden. Al Pacino plays Phil Spector. And if you can imagine that combination and the scenery chewing that would come from that, it's all there in all your wildest dreams. It's all there on, on, on the screen. Um, but after a lot of scenes in which it's basically just uh, Helen Mirren and Al Pacino having these long conversations in which he's, you know, he puts up all these screens and then it, she, she eventually decides that he she's found the humanity in him. She's kind of decided he's likable and decides to put him on the stand, which is something that she wasn't going to do before, which brings me to the scene that I really liked after she's like, got this terrible, she's got pneumonia. She's in terrible health. She's finally approaching the end of the trial. Um, she's decided to take a chance on him and to put him on the stand. And then as she's at the courthouse waiting, you see that Phil Spector has arrived. And on the television, there's this bustle outside and all of these reporters are running to cover him. And like right before you see him on the television that she's watching, like the guard stands up and blocks it. And then she kind of looks at another surveillance camera and there's something blocking it as well. And there's it's cut like so much to have suspense, you know, and then someone gets into the elevator and comes up the reporters are all outside. They're not allowed in. And then the door opens and he walks in out and into the spotlight out of the darkness. And there he is, Al Pacino in a giant Afro wig. And I laughed out loud at this scene, but it's also, you know, supposed to be both the grand dramatic scene and I think hilarious because, you know, she's finally decided that he can speak for himself and win people over. And he shows up looking like, this insane person <laughs> and uh, you know it all just deflates from there it's the great dramatic turning point of the movie and it all revolves around al pacino in an afro wig uh, there's something kind of spectacular about that as much as i think this is not a good movie at all i think it's uh, given the amazing talent involved it's kind of a disaster um so that is my pick for best scene in a bad movie how about you matt for me i actually picked um I decided not to pick a specific scene per se. I, I my my best scene in a bad movie is any scene from the incredible Burt Wonderstone that involves Jim Carrey. This is like the opposite of the Pacino thing in Phil Spector. Well, and anytime he shows up, he kind of ruins the movie. To me, it was like anytime Jim Carrey showed up in the incredible Burt Wonderstone, business picked up. You know, the movie itself is not very good. It's really just kind of a bland. Zoolander knockoff with a, a surprisingly bad Steve Carell doing this unconvincing character and Steve Buscemi is his partner. He's not very good either. They're like over the hill magicians who've lost their touch and their 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 partnership breaks down and their career is over. And Jim Carrey plays the guy, Steve Gray, who's like the young upstart magician who's the hip street magician daredevil guy like David Blaine or Chris Angel who's the new flavor of the month who's like stealing their audience away and he's not in a ton of the movie and he's not required to do anything in the movie but be funny and it really gives him the opportunity to get back to 
you know, like the good old Jim Carrey who used to just do funny movies. And I found it really refreshing, actually, and very enjoyable to see him get back to his roots to do what he does best, which is just outrageous physical comedy. And he's really, really great in the movie. I mean, the, the movie just absolutely springs to life anytime he gets uh, on screen. There's one – if I have to pick one scene, there's one scene in, in particular where he does a – magic trick in quotation marks where he drills a hole into his brain. Uh, It's not a magic trick. He just takes a, a drill and drills a hole into his brain. Thank you. I'm not here for applause. I'm a little bit different than the other magicians you'll see tonight. In fact, I'm not planning on doing any magic at all. Instead, I want to do a little thing I call drilling a hole in my head. Now, according to my research, there's a narrow angle where one can drill. Into the skull. Missing all the vital parts of the brain. Now, I've been informed by my medical team that I may lose one of my senses, leaving me with only five. I'm no longer special in any way. Yes. Just like one of you. So, cross your fingers for me. Oh, and parents, if you have small children with you, you might want to lift them up so they can see better. And it's just completely a showcase for Jim Carrey to make silly faces and silly voices. And it's it's hysterically funny. I definitely would not recommend Burt Wonderstone, but if you're a Jim Carrey fan... You know, and it pops up on TV, the movie pops up on TV, DVR it, and then just like fast forward to all of his scenes. That's the way to watch it. So that's my pick for the best scene in a bad movie. Any scene, but particularly the the brain drilling scene with Jim Carrey from the incredible Burt Wonderstone. All right, Allison, it's time for our final two Svuvi categories, one a a returning category and one a new category we're adding for this year that, to me, it feels like this should be our best picture, essentially. It's our best streaming discovery. So the best film you watched in 2013 on streaming, preferably maybe something a little bit older that you wouldn't have found if it hadn't shown up somewhere for streaming, and that's how you watched it. Allison, what is your Svuvi Award winner? So I wanted to pick something that, uh, you know, I felt was like the discovery part was important to me, which is like the movie that you didn't expect anything or, or viewing experience that you didn't expect anything of that you then were like, you know, really pleasantly surprised by. And I think that you know, at, that's, that kind of reflects how streaming works a lot of the time. You know, we like to choose movie. It's a great way to catch movies that we missed in theaters or to catch things that, uh, you know, you've heard are really good that, that come up. But it is it does also have a little bit of a different type of serendipity uh, that, you know, in terms of just recommendations or something you stumble across, it offers you a chance at uh, watching something you might not have in a traditional way. So uh, probably I, I did want to give I mean, like if if. Like just from sheer enjoyment and kind of impact, I would say my streaming pick would probably be one of the Netflix originals, which were the real story for me this year. I thought they were a really impressive and ambitious slate and that they really 
existed in this strange and interesting place kind of between ambitious television and film. But we've talked a lot about the Netflix series already. So I went with something different, which is uh, actually another TV series. And it's a BBC series called Call the Midwife, which is currently streaming on Netflix. Mm. And uh, I chose this one mostly because of that total serendipity. Uh, it was something that I'd heard mentioned before from a few television critics who I've really, who I really admire. And it has a terrible title, I thought, and it sounds incredibly boring in description, which is, it is about nurses and midwives in East London in 1950. And it's a BBC series that aired in the US on PBS. But what I really enjoyed about it is that it is indeed a period a British period drama uh, and has this vague sense of enveloping comforting of of this comforting quality that tends to come with a lot of them, which is why I think something like Downton Abbey is so successful. But so many of the storylines are actually very unexpectedly sharp, particularly since this has to deal with a like extremely poor neighborhood in the fifties. In some ways it's uh, the storylines are all this argument <laughs> on behalf of, of national healthcare actually, and of, of being able to offer national healthcare to everyone, including this poor neighborhood. But it's also, it deals with these issues of birth control, not being available then of what happens when you are the, you know, mother of seven children already, and you have an eighth one on the way now, and you can't afford that, and what you do in terms of looking for a solution, uh, and in terms of the care that's available at the time and technology. It's actually a really rich and surprisingly deep look at a lot of women's issues in the 1950s uh, in a way that really surprised me uh, for something that looks very... I don't know, like the television equivalent of pudding, maybe, that it, it, it has a lot of depth to it and some very strong, unexpected female characters. So I, I wanted to call that out just for the sheer pleasure of finding it that it offered me. That is one of the reasons I think viewing things via streaming services is so different from maybe the traditional linear viewing. So that is my pick, Call the Midwife on Netflix. Okay, that's a cool pick. I don't think I had heard about that uh, show. I'm going to have to check it out. My best streaming discovery of 2013, my Svuvi Award winner, is going to be a film that I watched on Netflix back in April. Uh, It's since expired on Netflix, but you can rent it or purchase it now on Amazon. And it's the film Busting from 1974, directed by Peter Himes and starring Elliot Gould and Robert Blake. And, uh, you know, there were probably better movies that I saw on uh, online, on streaming, on Netflix, on Hulu this year, you know, art house classics, all sorts of things. But this was really the, like the best and biggest surprise for me. This was something that I took a, just a total flyer on, didn't really know too much about, but uh, the director, Peter Himes, caught my eye. And Elliot Gould, who I'm a huge fan of, caught my eye. The fact that it was made in the 70s, you know, when it was Gould's really best period. Uh, And I hadn't really heard of this movie at all, and I thought it was fantastic. It's really one of the earliest buddy cop movies. You have Elliot Gould and Robert Blake playing buddy cops, and they're uh, sort of policing the sleazier parts of mid-70s Los Angeles. 
And there's something very interesting about the interplay between their jobs, which are really pathetic and mostly entrapment busts. You know, they're setting people up to arrest them. And the comic books that Elliot Gould's character is constantly reading when he's bored. And you really, really feel the gulf between these idealized heroes of superheroes and comic books and the real day-to-day life of a cop, of a beat cop. In, in the world of uh, 1970s Los Angeles. Busting is not a pretty word. Sorry to have to tell you this, but uh, you're under arrest. Busting is not a pretty job. Busting won't win you any medals. Busting just might get you killed. It's the dirty work that has to be done. And it takes a special kind of cop to do it. Peter Himes is a guy who's directed a lot of movies. He's had a long career. He's directed stuff like Capricorn One, Outland, 2010. He did several of the best Jean-Claude Van Damme movies like Time Cop and Sudden Death. He directed End of Days, starring my beloved Arnold Schwarzenegger. His son, John Himes, is a director as well now. He's the guy who's doing a lot of the more interesting direct-to-video action movies like the Universal Soldier sequels, Regeneration, and, and Day of Reckoning. And I think Peter Himes actually worked on one of those movies as the cinematographer. Uh, so he's still working. And he just he, he did a really great job in terms of the characters, the really bleak, cynical worldview – and some of the action sequences in this movie are really dynamic. There's this incredible, really suspenseful, very intense shootout in an outdoor grocery store. That's fantastic. So this was just, just a total surprise to me, just like out of the blue, just took a chance on something and absolutely loved it. I hope it comes back to Netflix soon. Um, you know, and if you're interested, maybe take a, you know, take a chance on renting it for whatever, $3, whatever it is. I really, really recommend it. That's busting, and it's available for rental or purchase on Amazon. Our final Svuvi Award of 2013 is really a Svuvi Award for 2014. We do this every year where we try to predict the best movie of next year this year. So what we do is we go by trailers, posters, anything we can go by. The only things that aren't allowed are we try to exclude movies that have already premiered at festivals or movies that are about to premiere at like Sundance or something like that just because that makes it that makes it too easy it's too easy to say oh this movie that was a huge massive success at Toronto last year is going to be a, a big hit you know next year you know we've already seen a couple of interesting movies that are opening in 2014 but there's no skill in predicting that we've already seen it so you have to pick something that hasn't had that boost, that hasn't had that, uh, you know, that seal of approval from a uh, from a a festival. And as we always do, we like to p- d- just reveal the movies from last year that we predicted. So, Allison, would you like to hear what films you predicted would be the best films of 2013? When we and did- filled with yes, and filled with curiosity and dread. You did a fantastic job. This might be <laughs> in all the years that we've done this. This might have been your best effort at this. Are you ready? Ooh, yeah. You picked Gravity mm. and The Grandmaster. 
Hey. Yeah, pretty good picks. What did that you? That wasn't bad. No. What did you think ultimately? Did they would they make your top ten list? Either of those films? Possibly. I mean, they'd definitely both be in consider in consideration for it. Yeah. 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 Yes. Are you ready to hear my picks? I am. All right, my picks. Uh, admittedly, I, I I took a flyer on one of these. I was very <laughs> hopeful, but it's actually a movie you liked and mentioned already. It was Pain and Gain. Pain and yeah. Gain, yeah, which is you, you gave us movie award yourself. So I, I picked Pain and Gain and The World's End, which was definitely on my top ten list, one of my favorites of the year. So I, I did pretty good too. One out of two ain't bad. I feel like that's like a this may be the best year we've ever had in terms of that. Yes, we've had some very very bad years that when it's come yes. to predicting. But uh, let's get to next year's picks, Allison. What are the are next year when we're doing this award? <laughs> what movies are you going to proclaim as the best of 2014? Yes, I feel like this is a movie that really is either going to be fantastic or just terrible, which is Noah, uh, Darren Aronofsky's take on the biblical story, starring Russell Crowe, Anthony Hopkins, Emma Ho- Emma Watson, and Jennifer Connelly. Uh, it's coming out March 28th. Apparently, they've spent $130 million on this movie. The footage that's come out so far looks vaguely the fountain e impressive, <laughs> but, you know, also extremely serious and, like, very mystical. And, and also, it's just a story that I find, like, if you were going to pick a story from the Bible, I feel like this is an extremely challenging one <laughs> to put on screen. Mm. So I am wildly curious about this. Uh, Darren Aronofsky, obviously a very talented filmmaker. I actually love The Fountain, so I have a soft spot for reaching very far and perhaps too far in your movies. So so I, I'm holding out hope for Noah. I, I feel like, yes, it's possible it'll be a debacle, but uh, it might be great, too. So that's my pick. Matt, what's your pick? I'm going to pick a movie. I guess technically it has opened overseas, but I haven't really read any reviews of it. And I'm not really sure which version has played overseas versus what's playing here. And really, I can't think of a better, more ridiculous choice that might also be either fantastic or incredibly terrible. And that's Nymphomaniac by Lars von Trier. The two-part, four-hour-long movie, hardcore sex film featuring a huge cast of stars, most of which you would never want to see having sex on screen – Including, uh, I think, uh, Stellan Skarsgård in there having sex. Oh, yes. I don't know if he has sex, but he's in there. He better. He better. (laughs) If he doesn't, I'm going to ask for my money back. Uh, Who else is in this thing? Charlotte Gainsbourg, Shia LaBeouf, Jamie Bell, Christian Slater, Uma Thurman, Willem Dafoe, Connie Nielsen, Udo Kier, and on and on and on. It is uh, the, the life story of a woman who I guess is a nymphomaniac. It's told in chapters, and it is apparently so large that it had to be broken in twain into two parts that are being released separately in March and in April. I'm sure it is going to be an event, if nothing else. Again, it could be horrible, like Noah. It could be horrible, or it could be great. So that's my pick, Nymphomaniac and Noah. Mark it down now. These are going to be the best (laughs) films of 2014. I recognize these girls. I didn't see them. May I sit down? What do you do in the RV? Answer my question. You sleep there. You sleep in there. You were sleeping out there mm-hmm. during the day. Why was the RV parked outside the house? Mm, I went for a drive. You went for a drive. You weren't driving. I know for a fact those girls were playing outside your RV. You weren't driving. It was parked. Was it a special day? 
Do you plan on taking two old girls? No. Have you done that before? No. Well, that brings us to our listener's choice section. We had an unusually close race in our last poll, which was made up of recent releases again, Prince Avalanche, Prisoners, and Post-Tenebrous Lux, all movies starting with a P, incidentally. Prisoners squeaked ahead of Prince Avalanche by a few votes, though I was really happy to see that Post-Tenebrous Lux, which is by most descriptions a very difficult movie, was really not that far in third place. So Prisoners is the winner. Prisoners is one of two films that Canadian filmmaker Denis Villeneuve premiered at Toronto this year. The other is Enemy, which, like Prisoners, stars Jake Gyllenhaal and which will come out in the U.S. in March. Villeneuve's last film, Ensemble, was a critical favorite that was nominated for a Best Foreign Language Film Oscar in 2011 and was a kind of mystery set in part in an unnamed Middle Eastern conflict. Prisoners is set in Pennsylvania and has an impressive cast full of movie stars. It is about two couples, played by Hugh Jackman and Maria Bello, and Terrence Howard and Viola Davis, who gather with their children for Thanksgiving. Halfway through the evening, they realize their two little girls have gone missing, and the two older children remember seeing a battered RV on the street and think it may have something to do with the disappearance. Jake Gyllenhaal, who plays Detective Loki, is assigned to the case and quickly finds the RV and its occupant, a developmentally disabled young man named Alex, who is played by Paul Dano. After questioning Alex and finding nothing, the police let him go. But Keller, the character played by Hugh Jackman, is convinced that Alex knows where the girls are and takes matters into his own hands. So, Matt, this movie sounds like a thriller by that description and certainly was made to look like a thriller in the trailer, at least the one I saw. So I guess my question for you is, did the film surprise you in its approach to this setup? It is, among other things, a two and a half hour movie that uh, isn't paced like a thriller at all. It seems to be more of a kind of morality play and drama. I don't know. How did you feel? It, I'm, I'm curious because you, the way you're describing it, the way you're my, – my expectations were almost completely different. I guess I sort of expected less of a thriller and more of a morality tale about – you know the, the grappling with grief and about how far that this uh, Hugh Jackman character was going to go to find his children or you know what he would do to this poor guy played by Paul Dano or perhaps not Paul uh, poor guy perhaps he's guilty you know torturing him or or hurting him to get the truth out uh i didn't realize how much of it was going to be like a serial killer thriller or a serial kidnapper thriller if you will and the character played by Jake Gyllenhaal, the the detective, uh, becomes more and more the focal point. And you said that in your introduction, you well, it's the story of these two families. Really, it's not, though. It very quickly becomes the story of this one guy, played by Hugh Jackman, and this other guy, played by Jake Gyllenhaal. And really, a lot of the other characters kind of fall by the wayside. And you did say it has a great cast, and it certainly does, but... This to me has one of the all-time great casts that's wasted. You know, like other than – I thought Jake Gyllenhaal was pretty good. Other than that and, – and, and Hugh Jackman is in a lot of the movie, although I didn't think he was particularly great. Other than that, I thought the entire cast was wasted. All of those great actors you mentioned, given so little to do, have very little screen time, and even when they're on screen, don't have a whole lot to do. And frankly, I was really disappointed by this movie – uh, not to beat around the bush, but I just thought this was one of the best-looking bad movies I've seen in a while. I thought it was really kind of terrible, frankly. 
uh, other than the fact that it was a beautifully shot movie by, I think, Roger Deakins. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would be the only thing, really, that I could recommend about it. Did you like it? Huh. I did like it. I was pleasantly surprised by it, actually. Uh. I thought from everything I, I saw about it, I expected it to be just kind of another... I just like another cop drama uh, in which, you know, just seems to have a bit more emphasis on the, the domestic front as well. But I thought that, and it reminded me of Ensemble in this way, actually, in that it is a story that has this almost like deeper weight to the, like in Ensemble, these two children kind of look into their mother's past and these terrible things that happened to her before she became, she immigrated to Canada. And the, the thing they find out is almost it's like a Greek tragedy. You know, it seems to have this like almost epic scope to what happens. And I felt and there was a touch of that here as much as it was set up in a much more maybe familiar setting of like just kind of uh, suburban slash rural area, you know, and, and kind of uh, your typical uh, man having what like kind of a crisis of masculinity in this moment of um, of distress. I felt like there was something to it and the explanation for the crime in the end that did actually work for me. I thought it did have some kind of power uh, beyond just the, the crimes being solved uh, really? that I liked a lot. Yeah, yeah, I did. I, I, fact, you know, I, I would agree. I would totally agree that, like, most of the cast just gets cast aside and is wasted. I mean, like, Viola Davis, this amazing actress. Yeah. It's really like one showcase scene and it's very small. Yes. You know, Maria Bello similarly spends a lot of the movie crying in bed. Yep. Um, But I thought that, I mean, in examining this particular type of character who is played by Hugh Jackman, I I, I thought that character was written in a really interesting way, you know, like in just... Go ahead, please. I don't know. Maybe he was written somewhat in an interesting way. Did you think his performance was interesting, though? I mean, he's just... No, I mean, it looked like Hugh Jackman. (laughs) But he's just constantly screaming the entire movie. I mean, it's all just... I mean, I don't know. He just... It didn't seem very convincing to me. It just seemed like the way that he was going to, you know, show how upset he was. Just... Like, his whole... The whole performance was just that. was just pitched at that level. And I, I don't know, for a two-and-a-half-hour movie, I felt like I need I need a little bit more depth, a little bit more variety, a little bit more of a, a you know, to you know just to mix it up a little bit. I just, to me, it just grew so tiresome just to watch him doing the yeah. same thing and scene after scene. And you compared it to Greek tragedy, so I guess, you know, for, like for you, that might excuse some of the other problems I have, but I just found everything about it so heavy-handed. So, like, the symbolism just so over the top. I mean, in the first, like, five minutes, not even five minutes, like, the first two minutes, there's, like, four references to religion. Like, uh, you know, there's the voiceover, Hugh Jackman's voiceover with the prayer. There's, like, a Jesus fish on his car. There's a crucifix hanging from the windshield. You know, it's just like – and then from there, just over and over, just the the overt – symbolism to me was just there was so much of it and just so hitting me over the head with it that I just found again just so heavy handed and just just a movie completely devoid of any kind of subtlety or nuance whatsoever and just just bludgeoning you like with the, with Hugh Jackman's hammer over and over just bludgeoning you to just to death with with the symbolism with the heavy handed metaphors with to, to, to me it just it just 
eventually I just kind of threw up my hands and just became totally exasperated and 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 it just it kept getting worse and worse because it it starts from this place where you're going oh this is going to be an interesting movie about how these families deal with grief and suffering and then it becomes like this schlocky serial kidnapping thriller with you know like crazy mazes and symbols and you know guys who are like collecting items and you know like snakes in boxes it's just to me it became so ridiculous i just I, I I don't know. I was really disappointed by this movie. Yeah, see, I feel like he. I mean, like he is a character who's like a stand-in for a particular type of like. I mean, particularly American fears, right? That uh, he's not supporting his family adequately, but wants to be seen that way, right? Like they're not actually doing as well as they uh, they can't afford another car, they can't afford certain things, but he still also wants to be seen as a protector and like the person supporting his family. He's uh, got survivalist tendencies, right? He has like a deep distrust of uh, of government structures, including the police, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's this real, I thought like actually, I, I mean like definitely they're written in broad strokes, but I thought it was like an actually like fairly, it was a fairly pointed portrait of, you know, a, a kind of like a, a particular type of like American male fear, you know, of this of this kind of like that you're not that people are trying to take these things away from you, you know, like your home away from you, your family away from you. And then something actually happens in which that occurs. Someone has taken a member of your family away from you. And how do you react? Uh, you know, yeah. that, and the way the way also that it casts a lot of its of its comparative morality, right? Like if something terrible happens to you, does that allow you to do something terrible in return to attempt to remedy it? Sure. And I I think that it, I mean, it's certainly, it's like, I I don't love Hugh Jackman's performance in this either. I would agree. I don't think he's the right actor for the role, but, but I think that it gets at something there in, you know, like what is one of the true tests of kind of, of morality and of, of ethics and kind of, of who you of humanity is like that you know when something terrible happens are you allowed to throw that all aside as soon as that is the case yeah i i feel like that that is what i wanted more of the movie to be about like i said i felt like that was the sort of the setup was the sort of promise of that kind of serious investigation of that but then after a certain point i really felt like the movie completely abandons that and becomes like i said just a very kind of silly over the top generic you know mystery not quite serial killer but like serial kidnapper thriller with just a really ridiculous uh villain you know like the this invisible man figure uh so to me like that was what i wanted i just didn't feel like i really got much of that from the movie in terms of your description of him as this guy as this sort of very American fear depicting this sort of very, you know, this type of, of American man's kind of fear of, of not being able to provide for his family, losing his family, all that sort of stuff. I guess some of that is in there and it's certainly, it's intended to be there. But for me, uh, again, like I didn't think the performance was very convincing at all. Like he just doesn't seem like, like uh, the, the, the American man that you're describing. Like I feel like Hugh Jackman uh, who can be good in the right project. I just feel like he's not the guy to play the typical American man. And I don't think he really brought that to the, to, to the part. And beyond that, I, you know, like, I think that the, 
the the sort of depiction of that, the interrogation of that idea would be a lot more effective if I felt like this the, the movie's vision of America was I don't know, seemed even remotely like a real place. Like this place that they live, wh- where are they? And like it doesn't seem like a real place. It just seems like a place with like a couple of houses, a police department where everyone's incompetent. And it's a world where like everyone is either like a victim or maybe a pedophile or uh, an incompetent police officer. Like there's no regular average people here. And I feel like if you're going to do a movie about what you're saying, about like depicting these very normal natural fears that are like sort of – uh, you know, taken to their worst extremes. I feel like you need to start from a, a, a place that's a little more natural, a little more believable. And I, I just didn't think the world here felt very lived in, very real, very believable. It just seemed, like I said, you know, it really did feel to me like a, a schlocky thriller, gussied up, dressed up with all these, you know, quote unquote important ideas or themes that I just didn't feel like it really wanted to explore or really earned. I'd be very, you never saw On Sunday, did you? No. I'd be very curious about what you think of it because it's also set, it's set in like a deliberately unnamed Middle East conflict, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. in a way that actually reminded me of how they use Pennsylvania in this, which is like almost an abstract at the same time that it's an actual setting, you know? Right. right. And I, it reminded me of that. And it didn't bother me, but I, I mean, like, I, can see your I can see your argument, but it was something that didn't bother me because I felt like that kind of worked in its favor. Uh, and it does have a sense of like a slight sense of remove in that way. I mean, it, it it felt to me like a movie that was not made by an American, but was about this very American personality type. Yeah, but, and, so, and sometimes yeah. that can yield like interesting movies, like uh, you know, the outsider's perspective on something. You know, has, has has sometimes produced some great movies, but it just in this case, I didn't. I don't know. The specificity was really lacking for me, and and. Uh, to to get at some of those things that you're talking about, I felt like it kind of needed a little bit more of that. Is there anything else you? I feel like I've I've just been just because <laughs> I really didn't like this movie. I've yeah. been kind of like just spouting. Is there anything else you wanna you wanna say? Uh, you know, to uh, to um, the movie's credit. I mean, I, mean, I, I did like, I did like Jake Gyllenhaal. I will say that. Yeah, I, I think he did. I mean, I mean, I will say this is one of those Hugh Jackman performances where I had trouble thinking of him. I, most of the time I thought of him as Hugh Jackman, you know, it was hard right. to kind of think of him, which is true for, I'd say like a good half of his performances. He yeah. is a movie star more than I would say he's an actor yeah. who disappears into roles at all. Yeah. Uh, Jake Gyllenhaal on the other hand, when he first showed up, I thought I would have that same problem with him. And actually that didn't, wasn't the case at all. I thought he mm. was very good in a character who is deliberately kept a little, a little vague in that we don't get a lot of details about him. Right. But I thought I really liked the way he was, uh, he was kind of very awkwardly dressed all the time. He mm-hmm. always has this button up shirt that's buttoned up all the way to the neck. Yeah. And, and he mentions at one point having been in a boy's home mm. and there is that sense that like, maybe that's where he learned to dress up was like right. a uniform of it that I really liked. Right. He also blinks very demonstratively at times. Did you <laughs> notice the blinking? No. Like, oh really? Oh yeah. He like, he's, he has very exaggerated blinking at times that, and then I looked it up and that was a choice. That wasn't me imagining it. That was something that, Gyllenhaal felt he felt like this guy would have a few ticks, physical mm-hmm. ticks, and that was something that he brought to the role that he wanted. He wanted him to be a blinker, so he was blinking. So uh, I don't know. It, I, he did to me. He created a character here. Yeah. You know, he, I, I agree with you. You know, you see Jake Gyllenhaal. You go, oh, he's going to be 
you know, Jake Gyllenhaal-ish. I actually feel like he's actually a guy who doesn't get enough credit. I think he's actually a better actor than than he's sometimes given credit for. And I, to me, he was far and away the best part of this movie. Yeah. No, I thought he was very good. And I did a good job of – I don't know. It's very – I think it's easy to do, dismiss him as like a pretty boy lead actor and uh, and that he did actually a good job of looking a little – like a guy who'd come from someplace rough, not necessarily, you know, like fresh off the streets, but some someplace, you know, from not like a great background mm. that he looked like someone who had kind of like made his own way. And I thought he did a good job of that. But any, but prisoners overall, we very split on this. I don't think we've ever been so split on a movie before. You would, you would recommend it. I would recommend it. I would I not. Would absolutely not. Not recommend it. Look at a few stills <laughs> online just to get the, the cinematography is gorgeous. It is gorgeous. Yeah, it's yeah. a beautiful movie. Just, you know, so look at a few frames or something. Look at a few publicity stills and move on. Uh, or check it out. It is available for rent on iTunes. Okay, let's wrap things up with Behind the Eight Ball, our segment where we give you three new titles on streaming, two listener recommendations, and one random film chosen blindly by number from our My List. Allison, you're going first. Are you ready? I am ready. All right, so let's go first with three new titles. First up is Wendy and Lucy, which is new to Hulu. This is a film from Kelly Reichert, who is a really great American indie filmmaker, starring Michelle Williams and Lucy the Dog. It is, I think someone described it as a minimalist economic thriller, which is certainly one way to put it. But it is also just a devastating story of a girl with very limited funds trying to make her way to Alaska to find work. The great, great leading turn from Michelle Williams. So that is available on Hulu. New to Netflix is Newlyweeds, which is another indie. It is an African-American stoner comedy from first-time filmmaker Shaka King. It actually played at Film Forum, which is not a common thing for a first-time filmmaker, which I think kind of attests to how unusual a film this is, and just basically about a couple whose lives are sort of in order, but who basically you know, rely on weed to get by. And the filmmaker described it as a, a love triangle in which weed is one of the one of the points on the triangle. So that is Newly Weeds on Netflix. And also new to Netflix is The Short Game, a documentary from Josh Greenbaum. I mention it mainly because it's the first original documentary that Netflix has acquired. And it's about junior golf, basically. Golf for players seven and eight. Competitive golf. Highly competitive. Uh, it's a really cute film, maybe a little too cute, but it plays really well. It's a crowd pleaser and uh, start of a very welcome thing, which is another new platform for original documentaries. Okay. How about uh, two listener recommendations? Okay. Our first one is from Jack. He writes, for the next episode, I highly recommend Elaine May's A New Leaf starring May and Walter, Walter Matthau, streaming free on Amazon Prime, dark little comedy nobody talks about. Um, and I am a huge fan of that movie. It's a great one. I would also recommend it if you have the opportunity. And as Jack says, it's streaming on Amazon Prime, so please take advantage of that if you have Amazon Prime. The second list of recommendation is from Megan, and it's actually of a service. 
She asks, why don't you include Mubi, that's M-U-B-I, as a streaming choice? This site is amazing and it isn't very expensive. There's such a diverse array of international, classic, and underground films available. I really don't go for mainstream movies. And for someone like me, who has limited time to spend on film watching, Mubi is a great resource. I feel it is cinema for smart people. Um, I think that we don't include it mostly because neither of us has it. Also, they, um, they cycle through movies on a 30-day basis. So they always have 30 available and like a new one each day. So I think just that timeline makes it a little trickier for us to include them because by the time this goes up, already half the time that you'd have to watch it would be gone. But it is certainly a great, a great, uh, they offer a great selection. And if you're looking for movies that are kind of, that aren't, uh, that are not quite the mainstream ones available uh, on certain other streaming selections, uh, streaming options, then movie is a great place to look. Um, so those are the two listener recommendations. Okay, how about one random film from your my list? You gave me number twenty-two, which uh, now that Netflix is stacking them, new additions on the top, or at least it has been for me the way I said it. It's a recent one I added, which is something in the air, the Olivier Assayas film from this year about May 1968 in Paris when there were many strikes and riots and occupations of buildings by students and workers, uh, a very an era in which more than a few films from more than a few great directors has been set. Uh, it was not uh, necessarily that big a critical favorite given how beloved Olivier Assayas is to critics, but uh, still one I would want to check out because he's pretty fantastic. So that is uh, on Netflix. Yeah, it's a good movie. It's not one of his best, but I, I saw it. It's it's good. All right, Matt. So it's your turn now. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right, three new releases. Okay, first up available on Netflix is the documentary Deceptive Practice, The Mysteries and Mentors of Ricky Jay. Movie lovers know Ricky Jay as the excellent character actor from many David Mamet and Paul Thomas Anderson films, but he's first and foremost a magician and a historian. Uh, of the field of prestidigitation, and this documentary explores uh, his own life, the story of magic through the ages. It's a little bit uh, superficial. It's not very long. It doesn't go terribly deep into any any particular subject, and some of that is by design because, of course, a magician never reveals his true secrets. Um, but there's a lot of interesting factoids, and, of course, there's a lot of very cool magic tricks. So that's Deceptive Practice. It's available now on Netflix. Also available on Netflix is the film Caesar Must Die, a very interesting interpretation of William Shakespeare's Julius Caesar that's set and shot in an actual prison with a cast of actual inmates. It was shot at a prison near Rome in Italy, and the cast members who aren't actually incarcerated there are former convicts. It's an abridged version of the play, so it's very – it's short. It's like 80 minutes, but it's a really interesting conceptual exercise. It's worth checking out. That's Caesar Must Die, available on Netflix. And finally, available on Hulu, a masterpiece of So Bad It's Good Cinema, No Holds Barred, the powerful story of a wrestler played by pro wrestler Hulk Hogan fighting another wrestler played by Tommy Tiny Lister in an alternate universe where wrestling is apparently not staged and is entirely real. You would think, Allison, that if Hulk Hogan could play anyone convincingly on camera, it would be a thinly veiled version of himself. But let me tell you something, Allison, you would be wrong. You would be dead wrong. Highlights of No Holds Barred include the scene where Hulk fights an entire parking garage full of bad guys and then scares there is a limo driver until he poops his pants, prompting the classic line, What's that smell? <laughs> 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 
So that is the immortal No Holds Barred, and it is available now on Hulu. Okay, two listener recommendations. All right, our first here is from listener Julian Birchman, who says, I've been doing a lot of end of the year catching up lately and have seen a few great titles on Netflix the past couple of weeks. I recommend all of the following Barbarian Sound Studio, In the House, and Wake in Fright. They're all wonderful films to discover at the end of the year. I hope all is well and keep up the good work. That was from Julian. In the House was one I think I recommended on our last episode, Allison. That was on uh, my top 10 list or top 15. It was was somewhere in there. That's a great movie. I recommended it last time. Definitely check that out. Uh, So that's uh, Barbarian Sound Studio, In the House, and Wake and Fright, which is actually an older film that was sort of rediscovered this year by Drafthouse uh, Films. Another one really worth checking out. I think we've mentioned it on the podcast before. And Mm -hmm. I've also got a recommendation here from Martin in Connecticut. He writes, Hi, Allison and Matt. My recommendation is the TV show Trailer Park Boys, which is streaming on Netflix. It's very Canadian, based in a trailer park in Nova Scotia. Very vulgar and very funny. If you like shows like It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, Eastbound and Down, and Workaholics, this should be right up your alley. The characters are almost all awful people, but mostly likable, except for the park supervisor, who's a real prick. It gets funnier the more you get to know the characters, with lots of callbacks and running jokes. A very young Ellen Page even has a small role in one of the seasons. Love the podcast. Looking forward to the Svoovies. And that was from Martin in Connecticut. Hopefully the Svoovies lived up to uh, his his looking forward to Ness. All right. And one from your My List. My List. You gave me uh, number 22 as well. And for me, that is the Joe Dante film The Hole. The plot description here is, In the basement of their new home, young brothers Dane and Lucas discover a mysterious trapdoor. With their neighbor Julie, the boys pry open the ominous barrier and find a bottomless hole, which leads them to excruciating pain and misery. Uh, Joe Dante is definitely the appeal here. I think this is his last movie. I don't know if it ever actually opened in theaters. It may have gone straight to DVD, straight to DV, DV, uh, DTV, straight to Netflix maybe. I'm not really sure. Didn't get a big release. Um, I still haven't caught up with this one, so there it is. It's on my Netflix queue waiting for me. The Hole. Allison, are you ready to discuss our listeners' choice options for our next episode? I am. We have three here, and what happened was uh, we looked through the options on all the different services. Not a ton of inspiring choices amongst the new titles. We didn't see a lot of stuff we wanted to see and talk about, so we decided we're going to we're going to go back. We're going to go look to some older films. We've given you three options here that are all oversights. There are three blind spots, three older films. They all actually happen to be French films. Three older French films we've never seen that we are going to potentially uh, catch up with. One of them we're definitely going to catch up with. We're going to cross off our list of blind spots. And I've got the first one here. These are all going to be available through the Criterion Collection on Hulu+. Plus. The first one is Shoot the Piano Player, directed by Francois Truffaut. Uh, directed by Truffaut in 1960. I believe it's his second film. And the plot description is... 
this is from the Criterion Collection. Francois Truffaut is drunk on the possibility of cinema in this, his most playful film. Part thriller, part, part comedy, part tragedy, Shoot the Piano Player relates the adventures of a mild-mannered piano player as he stumbles into the criminal underworld and has a whirlwind love affair. Loaded with gags, guns, clowns, and thugs, this razor-sharp homage to the American gangster film is pure new wave cinema. So that's Shoot the Piano Player, Francois Truffaut, we've never seen it. That's option number one. Allison, what's option two? Option two is from another well-known French director, Jean-Luc Godard. It is Masculine Feminine, the 1966 film that contains the intertitle, This film could be called The Children of Marx and Coca-Cola, a famous line. Stars Jean-Pierre Leo of 400 Blows as Paul, who is a literary wannabe and a romantic young man who chases a pop star, Madeleine, played by Chantal Goya, and becomes involved with her, and also somehow her two roommates as well, because it was the 60s. What can you do? <laughs> so, and it's supposed to be, you know, one of uh, Godard's kind of classic films of this era. So that's Masculine Feminine. That is also available on Hulu+. Plus. Okay, and finally, one more French masterpiece that we have embarrassingly never seen until now. And it is Claire's Knee, directed by Eric Romare from 1970. And the official plot description from the Criterion Collection for this one says, Why would I tie myself to one woman if I were interested in others, says Jerome, even as he plans on marrying a diplomat's daughter by summer's end. Before then, he spends his July at a lakeside boarding house nursing crushes on the 16-year-old Laura and, more tantalizingly, Laura's long-legged blonde stepsister, Claire. Bearing her knee on a ladder under a blooming cherry tree, Claire unwittingly instigates Jerome's moral crisis and creates both one of French cinema's most enduring moments and what has become the iconic image of Romare's Moral Tales. And those are the six moral tales that Romare directed during this period. Uh, I think I might have seen one or two, but I have not seen Claire's Knee, which is probably the most famous of them all. So another potential blind spot to take care of Claire's Knee. And that's also available on Hulu+. Plus. So which of these classic movie blind spots should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Units? You can send your pick to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com or enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your- 